All right, welcome to episode 10 of season two of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams. I'm your host, Emily White. And today we are going to be going through the revenue stream checklist. So we're going to make sure you're not missing any of the revenue streams we've covered um, and make sure you're all set. And today's podcast is brought to you by our friends at Banzoogle. I want to take this time to congratulate Banzoogle members for surpassing $100 million in commission-free sales of music, merch, and tickets through their websites. Banzoogle makes it easy to build a stunning website and online store for your music in minutes. All the features you need are already built in, including dozens of fully customizable templates, tools to sell music, merch, and tickets commission-free, mailing list tools to grow your fan list and send newsletters, integrations with Bandcamp, SoundCloud, YouTube, Bands in Town, and more, so you can easily add content from your other online profiles, plus live support from their musician-friendly team seven days a week. Plans start at just $8.29 a month, which includes hosting and your own free custom domain name. How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams podcast listeners can go to bandzoogle.com to try it free for 30 days and use the promo code SUSTAINABLE, all in caps, to get 15% off the first year of any subscription. That's bandzoogle.com, promo code SUSTAINABLE, and we'll share a direct link in the show notes. Okay, so we are in the home stretch of season two of covering the entire modern music industry in full from recording to release, creation to execution. Just to recap quickly, you've gotten your art together, you've monetized your music before it's even out with your pre-recording marketing foundation, you've gotten your business affairs together, so all the legal elements around your music is ready to go, you've recorded You've registered your songwriting to collect on your publishing in full, and you're set up and ready to go for sync placements. You've released and distributed your music properly. You've spread the word on your music through marketing. And you've been playing live and building an efficient touring strategy, and and you've also gotten your merch together. So now it's time to ensure you have all of the revenue streams we've covered in place Plus, learn about some bonus revenue streams if you're up for more, okay? So here we go. There are 10 revenue streams that are owed to you if you write, record, slash release, and play live, okay? So the first one is direct-to-fan, and that's going to be selling your music through your website, Um, That's where you're going to have the highest profit margins on selling your music and also collect the most data, I'm also going to lump Bandcamp into Direct-to-Fan. You really should be doing both of these things. But if you can't handle, um, you know, building your own website, honestly, go to Banzoogle or Squarespace. These are all really easy platforms, um, you know, where folks like me that can't code can can use. And obviously, Banzoogle is is literally built for musicians. Um, But if you can't handle that for any reason, um, definitely be on Bandcamp. Again, to me, the A-plus version is making sure you're selling your music through your website as well as through Bandcamp. Bandcamp is where you're going to have the second highest profit margins, um, and you're also going to retain more often than not, your fan's email address and and get that data for the long term. Um, The second revenue stream is digital distribution. So that's going to be however however you distribute your music to Spotify, Tidal, Apple, all of that. 
Um, so that could be through CD Baby, TuneCore, DistroKid, Label Engine, um, depending on where you're at in your career as well as your genre, right? Because if you're EDM, you might want to be on Label Engine, um, you know, and then you could also be with a distributor or label. But distribution is the second revenue stream. The third revenue stream is Patreon. Patreon is essentially your online fan club. Um, we talked about it in episode two, uh, especially you know if you're hitting the home studio or any studio and you don't have a clear vision for your release and you're not ready to launch a pre-order yet, launch a Patreon so you can uh, keep your fans in the loop and bring them along on your recording journey. But even if you have launched a pre-order and you do have a clear vision, you should be on Patreon anyway. It's essentially, you know, your online fan club. Um, you get the data from those fans. And I know plenty of artists um, that pay all their expenses just with their Patreon alone and then obviously make more income with everything else that I'm talking about. Um, the fourth revenue stream is your performing rights organization. So that's primarily going to be ASCAP or BMI if you're a songwriter in the U.S., um, you know, each country has its own specific performing rights organization. So if you're in Canada, it's SOCAN. If you're in France, it's SSM. If, if you're in the UK, it's PRS. So, you know, just look it up for your specific country. Um, if you do not register your songs within two and a half years, you don't get that money. So go sign up for your, for your local performing rights organization and then get in the habit of registering your songs every time you write a song and agree to splits with any co-writers. Um, if you are just collecting on your music publishing through your performing rights organization, you are not collecting on your music publishing in full. So the fifth revenue stream is music publishing. If you do not have a music publisher, head over to Song Trust. Um, you know, it was, Song Trust was founded uh, by the principals at Downtown Music Publishing. They published, you know, John Lennon's catalog, J. Cole, um, you know, just tons and tons of songwriters. So you have access to the same collection mechanisms as, you know, Image and Heap is another one of their artists. Um, you own the rights. You can get out of it, I believe, after a year. Of course, you can also collect on your publishing with a music publisher, but that's not necessarily open to everyone. So I just cannot stress enough, if you are just signed up for ASCAP or BMI, which are, you know, U.S. performing rights organizations, and you are not collecting on your publishing in any other way, you are missing out on revenue. So sign up for Song Trust to do that. Um, Sound Exchange, we touched on briefly. You also need to make sure you're signed up for Sound Exchange. That's going to be your royalties um, for Pandora, for Sirius. Um, the fancy phrase for that is non-interactive internet radio. And that basically means you don't get to choose the song the way you do on Spotify and Tidal and, and Deezer and all that. So make sure you go sign up for Sound Exchange so you're getting those royalties. Um, in the last episode, we talked about merch. Make sure you have an online merch store. Um, you can do this yourself, you know, through Banzoogle or Squarespace. You can also work with Fourth Wall for on-demand merch. Um, then you don't have like, you know, a whole bunch of stock if you don't know how much to order. Um, and then if you want better profit margins than that, as your uh, career grows, you can work with someone like Ambient Inks, who we talked about in the last episode. And also push out and promote your merch store, right? Like if it's just sitting on your website, no one's going to know about it. So run a flash sale on your birthday, run a 4th of July sale, holiday sales, all that good stuff um, to spread the word on it. Uh, 
in real life live shows, if you're comfortable doing that, obviously that is a revenue stream. Um, and then also make sure you have live merch too, right? You know, there's too many artists uh, where I go to shows and they don't have anything available. So that's another revenue stream that you should have. You don't want to be missing out on that. We did a deep dive on that in the last in the last two episodes, actually. And then I'm also putting webcasts as its own separate revenue stream because that space and technology certainly has exploded since the pandemic. So, um, you know, pop on Instagram live here and there and Twitch to start to tease people, but then you can build into ticketed webcasts. Maybe you do a residency once a month, um, but, you know, get creative with your webcasts and and do donation-based, but that's definitely a revenue stream you should be taking advantage of as well. Okay, so those are the 10 revenue streams uh, that are owed to you if you write, record, slash release, and play live. Um, I want to touch on neighboring rights quickly. Um, You are owed neighboring rights royalties if you record your music outside of the United States. Um, If that is the case, you can sign up with Centric or Premier um, or reach out to them because it's not like a self-serve thing um, to make sure you're getting that income. That's what's most important to me is that you understand what I just said. If you record anything outside of the U.S., you are owed neighboring rights royalties, so reach out to Centric or Premier. Um, There's actually some artists like in upstate New York that will hop over to Canada to record because of this or, um, you know, live near the southern border, go record in Mexico. Now I will explain why that is the case. Um, You don't really have to remember this. My goal is for you to get paid. Um, But as we've talked about, there's two main rights in music. There's the songwriting side and there's the recording side. So you get paid public performance royalties on the songwriting side through ASCAP or BMI in the U.S., And the United States is one of three countries where there is not an equivalent on the recording side. The other two countries are North Korea and Iran. So every other country in the world pays you performance royalties on the recording side. Um, If this is something you're interested in changing in the U.S., Uh, check out Future of Music Coalition because they do a ton of great work in Congress. And there is some bipartisan support behind this. Um, Again, not to get too into the weeds, but the radio lobby is the one who's really against it. And that's who's gotten this shot down forever. I know at one point, one of the bills was called um, the Aretha Franklin Respect Act because although Aretha was such a great songwriter, she did not write the song Respect So every time that song gets played on the radio, she does not get paid any performance royalties, which makes, I mean, she's the one that makes that song what it is, right? So that's the in the weeds answer as to why, um, you, what neighboring rights are. And again, if you record outside of the U.S., sign up with Centric or Premier to get that money. So that's the deal on neighboring rights. Okay. So I also want to cover some bonus revenue streams that aren't necessarily just owed to you for, you know, writing and releasing music and playing live. Um, VIP live show offerings is something that I feel you can do at any level. Um, I was just talking to uh, the woman I've been working with for makeup on this. Um, She was telling me Beyonce has VIP packages up to $1,500. But you don't necessarily have to be Beyonce to do VIP packages. You could charge an extra $5, $10, $15, $20 just to give access to Soundcheck. And actually, Elise, who did my makeup, said, oh my gosh, I would pay for that. I mean, she was ready to pay a lot of money to go to Beyonce's Soundcheck, right? But I'm saying like at any level, you can charge a little bit more to give a peek behind the 
curtain to give access to something that you're doing anyway. Um, you could also charge for, hey, we're going to get coffee bef- before the show. We're going to get tea before the show. Um, so that's that's an additional way to bring in some bonus revenue. You can also do VIP offerings with webcasts. Um, you could do... Um, a limited webcast, maybe there's only 10, 15, 20 people in there. If you're comfortable doing this, you could take requests, you could do covers, you could do a Q&A session, and it also could be a VIP webcast tacked on to you know, a general, regular public uh, webcast that's open to everyone. Um, I've touched on this a little bit, but one revenue stream that um, I feel that artists are really missing out on outside of the jam band scene is recording your live shows. So in the pre-digital era, when you had to sign to a label to record and distribute, they would legally block you from doing this because um, they didn't want it to compete with your CD and vinyl sales, which never really made a lot of sense to me. Um, but now most of, you know, most of you own your rights and you also have access to the technology of recording your shows. And the reason most of you don't do this is totally understandable. We're all perfectionists, right? So you're picky about how your vocals sound or how the recording sounds. It's not super perfect. But think about it from the fan's perspective, right? Like they're super excited for that memento where like you said Milwaukee or you heard yourself scream or whatever. Um, So, you know, that's something I would recommend doing. You can pop them on your website for donation. You know, you don't even have to charge a set amount or you could do subscription or it could be Patreon only, right? So take advantage of the fact that you own your rights and you have access to this technology that the artists that came before, that came before you did not have access to any of that. Another thing um, I've done with artists uh, when I've worked with them is examine their catalog. And uh, more often than not, artists don't have their entire catalog available on vinyl. So you can kind of start this whole process. I, I usually do it like once a year with an artist if they have three, four, five, whatever releases not on vinyl and like start with the first one, right? Like run a pre-order for that vinyl, you know, have bundles, have autographed versions. Um, so that's a revenue stream just sitting there um, that you can add without even recording any new music. Um, and then if you sell, you know, a few hundred copies of any of your vinyl releases, reach out to the Coalition of Independent Music Stores, which is abbreviated to SIMS. And if you're selling a few hundred copies, which is a lot for vinyl, um, they're most likely going to buy some for you and then distribute those to record stores nationwide on your behalf. And literally, they'll just buy the product. I feel gross saying product, but you know what I mean. They'll just buy the vinyl from you, uh, which is really nice. Speaking engagements, if that's something you're comfortable with um, and interested in, you can even start by reaching out to local universities, local schools. If anyone ever contacts you about a speaking engagement, ask if they have a budget. If it's a travel situation, um, ask you know for them to cover, ask if they'll cover your travel on top of it. Um, I've been really fortunate to do a lot of speaking engagements over the years and almost all of them have come to me. And I had someone ask me, you know, how I do so many, and it's not really something I'd considered, but one thing that I do that's just kind of inherent, like I had the absolute privilege of speaking at Johns Hopkins last week, um, is I post about it in advance, like 
super honored to be speaking at John Hopkins on behalf of I Voted Festival, right? And then um, I get, you know, it, it was mostly students in the audience and I gave my phone to a student in the front row and asked if they would take some photos. Um, if I have books on me, I usually offer a free book and offer to credit them. And then I have that content and then I post it afterwards. So um, keep that in mind, you know, for any public speaking engagements you do. Um, even if it's expenses only, right? Like I've done, I've done plenty of expenses only speaking engagements that have led to um, a lot more things. But having that on your social media reminds people like, oh, wow, like I want Eli to come speak to my school. Like, oh, Emily would be good, you know, to talk about that or whatever. So it's another way um, to kind of keep that perpetual cycle going. Um, sheet music. So when I was working with the Dresden Dolls, who are a keyboard drum duo, we used to get a lot of requests for sheet music. And so the singer of the band, Amanda Palmer, started putting together um, photos from the first album, um, you know, handwritten. She had the original handwritten lyrics. This project was kind of the bane of my existence, but because um, I had to put all that stuff together. Uh, but she got so into it that it ended up turning into a really beautiful book that she called um, the Dres their first album self-titled, The Dresden Dolls Album Companion. And it ended up retailing for like $50 because it had so many photos and so many pages. And it became this gorgeous coffee table book and piece of art that all the fans were buying, even if they couldn't read music, right? So get creative with this. Um, you know, to turn it into a legitimate merch item. And that was very authentic. She just wanted to share that with everyone, but that ended up uh, being a really lucrative uh, project for the band. Um, although this, for their second album, we just did like a normal sheet music book and that did well too. So um, music lessons, um, back to the Dresden Dolls again, like Brian Viglione, uh, the drummer of the band has played with Nine Inch Nails and Violent Femmes. Um, he gives drum lessons to kids, to adults. Uh, there's a photo of... Uh, um, you know, in the book, this podcast is based on of Brian giving a drum lesson to an adult and the adult is just like the happiest human I've ever seen. Um, that picture always warms my heart. So um, that's something you can do in person. I've worked with artists that do, you know, vocal lessons over Skype. So um, if, you know, if these national and international touring acts, if it's, it's, if it's not below them, it's not below any of us. And teaching is one of the greatest gifts uh, you can give. So I've got a few more for you. Um, podcast revenue. Um, I'm not saying it's easy to make money on podcasts, that's for sure. Um, but if that's something that calls to you, you know, getting a little more in-depth and intimate with your audience, maybe, maybe it's even special podcast episodes on a track you're releasing or an album you're releasing. Um, you know, you can reach out to brands you're interested in, um, including local brands, you know, nonprofits, and then it crushes my soul to say this, but um, there is a podcast uh, distribution, you know, there's, there's podcast distribution technology called Anchor that distributes to Spotify, and their royalty is very high. It's not like I'm paying my rent with that royalty. Um, the reason it crushes my soul is Spotify is paying podcasters way more than they're paying musicians, and of course, they built their business off the backs of you all, and I've made it very clear how messed up that is. Um, but if you want to distribute your podcast, uh, to Spotify, uh, through anchor, um, that's going to be a very high, um, royalty rate for you. 
Um, branding sponsorships and endorsements. I have this in the bonus revenue stream category because again, it's not necessarily something that's guaranteed. So I get hit up all the time by like music, branding and sponsorship people pitching themselves to be on this show. Um, and I haven't had them on. I might do a special episode, but I haven't had them on because everything we've presented to you is available to you. Right. And so we, we touched on this briefly, but what brands and sponsors are looking for is reach for sure, but they're also looking for engagement, right? So first you need numbers and then you need to make sure that your fans are actually interacting with you um, throughout those numbers. Um, You know, generally you want to work with brands and sponsors that um, are authentic to you, something that you're genuinely into. Um, You know, unless it's really a life-changing amount of money, then you're going to have to decide Uh, if it's worth it. But like I already said, you know, you can also reach out to local brands that you're into, nonprofits, to promo trades. Um, But like I said, this this is income that's not necessarily guaranteed, but I would be remiss not to talk about it. Syncs is another one that falls into that category, right? Like sync sync placements are, are revenue songs in film, TV, commercials, video games, all that stuff if they are landed, right, because it's not necessarily guaranteed, and you own your rights or are recouped with a label and or publisher um, if you have partners on um, either of your two main rights. And I interviewed Zoe Keating in season one of this podcast, which is also in the forward of the book, and she does really well in sync, but um, she calls it mana from heaven, right? Like it's not consistent revenue, like those core uh, 10 revenue streams I spoke about Uh, earlier. So that's why they're in the bonus category. Um, The next one I probably should move into the um, first category or the first list of, you know, money that's owed to you. I just put it in the second one because you really have to have millions and millions of YouTube streams to get it, but it would be YouTube royalties for your recording side. Um, There's a company called AdRev that's owned by sound, uh, that's owned by downtown um, that you can collect your royalties on. I've also worked with, um, there was a company called IND Music that's since been acquired by Live Nation. I've had a lot of success working with them. Um, so artists can collect their, uh, recording royalties on YouTube. And then of course, playing on other artists' recordings, um, you know, session work or playing on their shows, make sure you're getting paid for that stuff. Um, I know a lot of you guys set up like swaps and stuff. If you're setting up any sort of swap and someone is playing on your work um, for free, they still need to sign a work for hire because you don't want them coming out of the woodwork later saying, oh, I wrote on that or I didn't get paid or whatever. So, um, but yeah, obviously ask about um, getting paid. And then I have, you know in the business affairs chapter of the book, like some ways to get creative on royalties too. You know, like that's a cool thing about owning your rights. So if someone says like, I have no money, it's like, well, could I get 5%, you know, of the recording revenue or something? Um, See if you can get creative there. And then finally, uh, producing, mixing, mastering, remixing, and or arranging for other artists. Those are other ways uh, you can reach out, ask if folks have a budget um, and get paid. So, um, Oh, one last thing. Also in the book, I have an open source Google spreadsheet link um, that's a revenue stream chart where you can plug in all your royalties and it's going to spit out monthly and annual projections for yourself. So you can start to plan a little bit 
what you can count on monthly and annually. So this feels like a job in a good way. And when I wrote that, I'm like, is anyone going to do this spreadsheet? And I had uh, musician Steph Reed, musician and artivist Steph Reed on season one, because he was like, I love the revenue stream, you know, um, chart. So I was like, okay, cool. Like there's, there's at least someone doing it, which uh, really warms my heart. Okay. So I'm going to bring out um, our first guest. I'm going to read her longer bio because it is that impressive. Uh, Lachi is an award-winning recording artist and prolific EDM vocalist whose works have debuted on national dance charts, amassing millions of streams and finding placements on TV, radio, and film. Being legally blind, Lachi advocates for disability culture, inclusion, and accessibility in the music industry. A leader in disability inclusion, Lachi is founder and president of Ramped, a coalition advocating for disability inclusion in the music industry. Finding national recognition in Billboard, The New York Times, Hollywood Reporter, and more for their work bringing disability inclusion to the Grammys telecast. Lachi splits her time serving on the Grammy board as New York chapter governor and DEI ambassador and, and advising on the National Independent Venue Association and Songwriters of North America DEI committees. Outside of this, Lachi consults and collaborates with major music firms, production houses, and nonprofits, including the White House, United Nations, Amazon, Target, Adweek, the National Endowment of the Arts, and more to promote inclusion in the intersection space. From hosting a PBS American Masters segment to performing at the Kennedy and Lincoln Centers, to appearing in national ads promoting accessibility, to voicing the audio description on Netflix, Net, Netflix's Kanye West documentary, Lachi uses her creative talents to amplify intersectionality and disability culture. Named a dedicated foot soldier for disability pride by Forbes, Lachi has been featured in Essence, BBC, Yahoo Life, and American Songwriter, amongst others, for bringing for her work bringing disability culture into mainstream discussion and for her brand of fashionable, upbeat, and unapologetic disability pride. I'm so excited to welcome my friend, Lachi. Hey, hey, hey. Wow. That is a bio, ain't it? Yes. I had to read your long one. The short one just doesn't, um, you know, do justice. So how are you? I'm doing awesome. I'm really excited to be on this podcast. I have been looking forward to it huge fan of your book. And I'm like, thank you, Emily, <laughs> for having me. This is really, and I'm actually, when you were talking about the other streams, I was sitting there furiously taking notes because I'm like, I'm out here to learn as well. So thank you for having me. I can't wait to get into it. Oh, I'm honored. And we're going to dig in on the revenue stream uh, part later, but first, how were the Grammys? You're just getting back from Los Angeles. The Grammys was a whole vibe. I'm, we're really proud of the work we got to do. So I don't know if you know, but Ramped was an official accessibility partner um, for the Grammys. And we got to do so many cool things working hand in hand with the staff. We got ASL on the red carpet um, through our consultations. We got audio description and captioning for the live stream. That dais where you saw Kim uh, Petrus and Sam Smith, that's actually an accessible dais, which we advised um, for the Recording Academy to have. So we're just like, yes, access. And we came out, um, a lot of folks with disabilities and neurodiversities, um, we all came out to watch the show and it was just such a beautiful thing. So yes, yes to more of that. <laughs> Absolutely. I love it. Mm -hmm. So let's start at the mm -hmm. beginning. You're the daughter of Nigerian sure. immigrants and grew up in Maryland. 
When did you move to New York City? I moved to New York City, uh, well, I consider myself a New Yorker at this point. I've been in New York City for over 10 years, and I think that that is the mark where you can say you're from New York. Uh, but I was born in Maryland. We moved around from upstate New York to West Philadelphia to uh, North Carolina. So I've been all over the place, and that's why you don't hear, like, a dedicated accent. <laughs> but... Yeah. I mean, I'm New York to the heart. I will tell people, if you see a mural of New York, you will see my face painted in it. That's how New York I am. So, You are definitely a New Yorker. That's for sure. So what was your experience making the albums And This Is My Life in 2006 and Ugly Beautiful in 2008? Because that was a very different era, even technology-wise. Yeah. I mean, you know, life is a lot different today, right? Today, I have my own home studio. Today, I have been able to build a studio that's like accessible for me. I now know how to produce myself. I do my own vocals, namely because COVID has made us have to do that. Um, but back in the days, back in the, you know, pre-college, just trying to make it days, I, I made those albums. I was a very different person. We would have to go into the studios. Um, I worked with a gentleman named Robert Hanablu on that first album. And, you know, I was really grindstoning, like grinds to the floor on that. And I actually hearken back with sort of like a positive nostalgia to those days because I kind of almost missed those days where we were just grinding. We were working together to try to get albums out and, and get the songs together, spending late nights all together in the studio as a group uh, till 2 a.m. trying to get shit done. Are we allowed to cuss on here? Yes. By the way. Totally, totally cool. <laughs> but, you know, it is, it's definitely, I love that you say it's, it's a different time. It is definitely a different time. It's so um, much easier, I guess, in ways to make an album. But a lot of the soul uh, has been sort of rearranged. And so I do miss some of that soul of, mm. of hustling and getting into the studio and staying really late um, and just having a bunch of people in the studio that really have, that are really just there for the fun. <laughs> so, yeah. I hear you on that. So around that mm -hmm. time, you also played South by Southwest. Do you remember if you applied on your own? Like, were you there officially or unofficially? So I was at South by Southwest unofficially. And it's so funny because in 2022 was the first time I actually got my official South by Southwest showcase. That was just last year. Um, but I had gone down there and um, I don't know if folks know this about me through Emily's very extensive and generous bio, uh, but I identify as blind. And my guitar player of that time back in, gosh, 2010, 2009, <laughs> he was blind as well. And we both went down to South by Southwest and booked a bunch of independent shows. And me and the sort of go-getteriness uh, that I had back then, I wrote to a bunch of labels that I had no business having their email addresses, right? And I wrote to them and I said, we're going to be performing at South By at these dates and these small sort of bars. So if you're in town, please come by. I expected no one to show up. Uh, we went down our, on our own dime and we played those shows and someone showed up to one of the shows, <laughs> a label exec showed up to one of the shows, was blown away and signed us to um, our first sort of major indie deal. 
And that was kind of all she wrote. That was the beginning of my journey. And it started with me and my guitar player friend just booking shows on our own and diving into this and, and I don't know, having the tenacity and the boldness to write to a bunch of um, label heads that we really shouldn't have been writing to. But sometimes it works, or at least it worked back then. So I love that story. And I think it's a really good lesson for everyone. I'm not totally surprised you were unofficial because like I've totally taken that approach as well. Like anyone can book a gig in Austin around that time. I see people playing on like front lawns and porches and bars and whatever. And like the people that are coming to check you out, like no one cares if it's official or unofficial. It's all the same. Even when I've had artists who are quote official, like we book a whole bunch of parties and like unofficial stuff as well. So I love that. And I would say you're definitely still a go-getter to this day. That's for sure. Yeah, I'm still out here writing like personalized emails to folks whose emails I shouldn't have and saying like, hey, check me out. It worked once uh, fucking 14 years ago. So maybe it'll work again today. But yeah. Well, and also like you just said, you just got your first official South by Southwest badge like 10 years later. It's like, you know, your story is such an example of don't wait around for stuff. Just get out there and make it happen. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, and I love that you say it doesn't matter if it's official or not. Frankly, I had a very similar experience to the South by experience I had 10 years ago. Uh, It was a little less crowded because it was 2022. Um, But honestly, we were, like you said, still hustling, still doing on it. We had an official showcase, but we still showed up to a ton, a ton, a ton of parties. And that was where a lot of the work was actually getting done. That was where a lot of the like meaningful meetings were actually happening um, because when we do these festivals, sometimes they're a little stuffy and sometimes these execs actually want to know what's going on at the after parties, at the day parties, at the side parties, or just at a bar where a bunch of artists happen to conglomerate. It's so true. So as you mentioned, that led to your first deal, which was with Fanatic Records under EMI. Is that what led to uh, features for you on Oprah Radio, the CW and NPR? Yeah, that was my first kind of go round of the taste of limelight. Um, we, uh, I, you know, as artists, especially as a new artist that didn't really know what I was doing, um, it was quite the whirlwind. Um, we did a lot of shows. We opened for some really cool artists, including Patti LaBelle at that time. And we got a lot of really great coverage. And it was a really, um, it was a lesson learned on how, how do I want to actually showcase myself to the world? So as I was running around doing these interviews and opening for these folks, making fans and meeting new people, I was actively learning how I wanted to show up and mold myself uh, to be who I want to be. And it's interesting because back at that time, I didn't talk a lot about my disability. Uh, I kind of focused mainly on the music and That was where I was uh, during that time. Today is a totally different story. Uh, I am very disability first. And it really kind of shows the growth that I went through. Um, You know, a lot of times, especially when you're really young, so I was super young when I signed that first deal, you don't know how you want to show up. And you kind of yes man a lot of things. And I'm not going to say I actually am really great friends with the folks that still run Fanatic. I don't know. They're not a label anymore. Now they're generally a promotions company. Um, but I do have to say that it is really essential to know what you're doing 
and know what you're signing and watch podcasts like this. This podcast is, is over the top. Like Emily literally gives you like, do these seven steps and go to this actual like website. And also I made an Excel sheet for you to put in your, but I mean, all, all I can say is just know as much as you need to know before you sign the dotted line of a major contract. Well, thank you. But I think you and I both learned it the hard way, right? Not, not really the hard way because it was fun, but by navigating all this stuff and figuring it out. Yes. Yeah. Right. Signing and then learning. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's why you don't want to sign for too long. But um, no, that obviously led to incredible opportunities for you. You mentioned opening for Patti LaBelle. I believe that was at Pride Fest here in Milwaukee where we're recording this. Can you tell us about that experience? Oh, yes. Yeah, that was in Milwaukee. Okay, here we are, one degree removed. Um, yeah, I actually really enjoyed that. That was probably one of my first major shows. Um, again, as if you're following this timeline, I went to South by, got signed, and then I'm opening for Patti LaBelle. It's like, okay, wow. It was a large crowd, large mm -hmm. audience. Um, so there were, I was, Patti LaBelle wasn't the only sort of, big name celebrity on that ticket. There were several other celebrities, including, oh, what is the name of the comedian who I absolutely love? Um, Kathy Griffin. Oh, yeah. So it was just a really big hodgepodge of big names. Um, and I had my first sort of big major show and it was exhilarating. And I think the best thing that I would be grateful for for that show was the fact that I was prepared. Um, we rehearsed a lot. We had done a lot of local shows, you know, here in where, where I am now in New York. Um, we had a lot of support from our sort of cult fans um, that were really into the fact that we were a bunch of, we all had disabilities in our band. So we had a nice little disabilities cult of blind and disabled folks who loved us, um, even though we didn't celebrate it so much um, forwardly. But when we got there, there was so much, we were afraid, you know, we were going to do a, our first big show, but we had so much love from our supporters and we were so prepared um, that we knocked it out of the park. And I got to say that that opportunity was, was one for the books. And it really allowed me to understand what it means to play to a big crowd. I love that. And we talked at the beginning of the live episode, which was two episodes ago, about how practice does make perfect, right? So I love how you're talking about preparation. I don't want to digress too much. Um, I don't know if you know my attorney, yeah. Joyce, Joyce Stollinger. I feel like that's someone you would have run into at some point in New York. But the first time I was on a super huge panel, um, she was like, prepare, 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 prepare. And I got together with a friend the night before and he was like, he was just asking me like, you know, mock questions or whatever. And he said, um, you know, do you know who you're on, who you're on a panel with? And I was like, no, was just like super naive about, he was kind of like, you're screwed. You know, it was like the founder of Pandora, Ted Cohen, um, you know, Tom Silverman of Tommy Boy, Steve Greenberg of, of S-Curve Records. And then I don't remember anything I said, but then I was asked to speak at like five other conferences afterwards. And I credit Joyce with saying, prepare. And all I did was get together with a friend the night before and do that. But, but you really put the work in. So you were ready to go and crush it at Pride Fest opening for Ms. Patti LaBelle. Yeah, uh, I think this, this advice on pre preparation is a huge one, um, especially when it pertains to doing something live. You mentioned earlier about how sometimes artists get cringe um, about their putting out their live stuff due to lack of polish. Um, but at the end of the day, preparation, A, sort of 
minimizes any weirdnesses. And so the lack of polish is beautiful and genuine as opposed to you actually messing up, right? And so I say prepare, prepare, prepare. Now we do at, you know, my team, we do a ton of speaking engagements. We speak at um, Google, Amazon, wherever you can. And we do this thing called keynote concerts, which we'll probably get more into. But every single time, even if I'm doing the same set every day and every night while we're on tour, we have to be prepared uh, because, you know, someone's going to ask a question out of the water or you're going to be on a panel with, I've been on panels with people that I like would die to meet. And then I'm just sitting there and they're, we're arguing about something. So it's like being prepared, knowing who's, who your audience is, who you're on a panel with. I can't underscore that more. I love that. So fast forward a few years, how did your release with Trendef Sony imprint come about? You moved on to another label from there. Yeah, well, I met, where did I, you know, what's so funny? So Mike Gonsolin out there, he, he works with everybody. Um, He is a producer out in LA. He runs Trendef and they have their imprint through Sony. Um, He actually met, he actually found me probably on, on one of those things that were big back in those days, I believe it was probably Reverb Nation. Um, he found me and was like, I love what you're doing. I love your voice. Let's talk. Let's get you out to LA and let's record you because you're fun. Um, and so we went out there and we had a great time. We recorded and, you know, I got to, that was probably one of my first times recording in a major-esque, you know, studio. And It was a great time, but I think the real lesson here that I had learned was people are out here looking at these different platforms where we're putting ourselves. Today, it's not necessarily something like a reverb nation. Maybe it's your 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 Instagram, your TikTok, or you know, your your bands in town, right? Um, and I don't know, the lesson of making sure that all of your stuff is consistent and your brand is ready to go if you get that call was really the lesson I got. Um, I had an amazing time and I really think that my game upped uh, because one of the things I learned a lot in working in sort of my first major situation in studio was confidence. Um, I learned how to be more confident in the studio, how to navigate the studio and how to talk to artists that are really sort of succeeding in the place I want to succeed, how to talk to them at their level. That was what I kind of gained from that experience. Do you feel that confident? Cause you just use this word too. Do you think that confidence came from experience, just putting yourself in the situation and doing it? I think so. Um, but I'll go a step further because, you know, growing up being sort of legally blind and a little sort of outcasted and awkward, I never really had a lot of friends and I, I was very shy and quiet growing up, like super duper shy. Um, And it was always music that kind of brought me out of my shell from performing at a high school talent show to joining like a choir in college. And really what made my sort of confidence jump, at least in that situation, working in my first major studio, was getting in the studio and being good. Mm -hmm. Um, I got in the studio. I was good. And everybody was like, yo, she's awesome, dude. Let's get her on something else hey, would you like to meet my other guy, this guy, that guy? And I'm thinking to myself, you know, despite my shyness, despite my this, despite my that, my music was speaking for itself and I could speak the lingo. I knew what the different um, production tools were, what the different software was, what the different mics were. And 
that really just boosted my confidence. I think being prepared, knowledgeable, experienced, and really allowing my confidence, um, sorry, my talent to speak for itself was what lended to the confidence. I love that. And, you know, you also referenced how one opportunity leads to the next. I remember, I think I was in Mm -hmm. Spain or something with one of the artists I was managing and his drummer said very simply, it's like, excuse me, it's like the more stuff we do, the more stuff we get. And it's true, you know, and you put yourself out there in Austin at South by Southwest and and just grew from there. Mm -hmm. So you're certainly a shining example of that. For sure. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you do, the more you do, the more you get and the more work you have to do. Yes. Um, I think a lot of artists have this misconception where it's like, once I get a label or once I get a manager, or once I get that big publishing deal or once, once, once. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is when you do get that, that's just step one. Like that so much more work comes um, and you have to keep your chops sharp and you have to keep yourself um, ready for all of the opportunities. So for sure. Yeah, so true. So how did your collaboration with Israeli world music pr- producer Zafir Efrak and Moroccan vocalist Maxime Karuchi to create the track Dalale come together, which garnered over a million views on YouTube? Yeah, so <laughs> this my whole story is just so multifaceted. As we're going through this, I'm like, yeah, okay. So that was a whole other thing. So I... After, um, so I had a a day job for a while before I went like full, full into music. Um, And I didn't have the best experience at that day job. It was just, I'm a musician. I'm not a person behind a desk. So I ended up leaving that day job and it was for the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers sidebar. Uh, But I ended up leaving that day job and having no health insurance and no like plan or scheme of how I was going to take care of myself. Um, So one of the things I did actually was I got on this website called SoundBetter. So it's called soundbetter.com. And really what it does is it's a place where professional producers and vocalists um, can be hired by folks looking for that. And so I got on this website to offer my service as a songwriter and as a vocalist. And uh, I'm getting to the, I'm getting to the Zafiri frock part because he found me there. Uh, But the only reason he found me there was because I kind of garnered my way to the top by doing a ton, a ton, a ton of songwriting gigs. I mean, for like two years, I was top lining. I was songwriting. I was getting hired left and right. And it's so funny because my first gig on Soundbetter, some guy paid me like $75 to do a top line. And it was terrible because I didn't know what I was doing back then. And I had a a crappy mic. I didn't know how to do anything. Uh, And he was like, this is not a very good thing. And he kind of walked me through it. And at the end of it, I gave him his great product for $75. Um, By the time I was getting gigs from folks like Zafri or Efrak off of that, off of that uh, platform, you know, I was making anywhere from two to 4k a month, just getting hired on there. And I ended up meeting some of the most amazing people that I've worked with just through offering my service as a vocalist and top liner and songwriter on this sort of, um, I guess I would call it like a Fiverr for Musicians Mm -hmm. style platform. Um, And so that's where I met Zafiri Frock. Um, He was like, I really want to have an American, a Moroccan and a person from Israel sort of do this song. And uh, we teamed up and I could not have expected it to blow up the way it did. I love it. That's so cool. 
So you've also worked with Snoop Dogg and Kendra Black. What brought to, what brought you together with these artists? It's still sort of in the vein of working as a songwriter. Um, I really found that my songwriting, as much as I love being an artist, which I really love doing, and I love being a top line or vocalist, um, I found that I have a very specific niche for writing melodies and writing powerful hooks, as well as, you know, dabbling into cheeky lyrics. And so through my traverses, um, working with different songwriters and collaborating sort of on the back end, I ended up uh, working with, you know, these powerful names like Snoop Dogg. Um, now, to be completely frank, because so many people ask me, like, how was the collab with Snoop Dogg? You know, by this time, it turns into, you know, my manager, their manager, getting us together and having us all right. Right. It's not like I'm it's not a cool story of like I met Snoop Dogg at a bar and we smoked a blunt and we were like, we got to get in the studio. Um, but, you know, a lot of I think one of the things that I would say is, especially if you're a singer songwriter um, and you love being an artist, um, there's a lot of upward mobility um, need and fast movement for songwriters. And there's also in the Recording Academy, which I'm pretty sure we're going to get to. Um, a new category specifically for songwriters. So I think don't fault, don't cheat yourself of your songwriting because that in and of itself is a very powerful skill that can get you into very powerful rooms. I love that. You then collaborated with Marcus Schultz on a song titled Far that led to an Armin Van Buren mix that also led to appearances on gaming platforms. You kind of just touched on this, but Tell us how you approach collaborations because it's something you've had so much success in doing. Yeah. At one point, I don't know who said this. It, one of the, one of these trance gods uh, called me the top line queen. I need to go look it up so I can use it as a quote, but <laughs> I mean, I love to collaborate. Um, one of the things that I've found is that if I keep myself in my own box and only listen to my own music and only stay in my own head, well, I'm not really pioneering, changing, and growing. Um, so I see my, um, I guess, my other folks in my field as colleagues, whether it's other producers, whether it's other songwriters, and whether it's other artists. And so I love to hear what they have to say, hear what they're doing, and turn our two different opinions into um, something beautiful. So I have a very um, unique and interesting story, right? I'm a blind Black woman from immigrant parents, and now I'm from, you know, New York, and to bring that experience, right, to like two Dutch guys who <laughs> do trance music, um, it ends up telling a beautiful and different story. Um, and I think, so by the time I worked with Marcus Schultz and all of those guys, um, we, I was signed to big management and Gary Salzman. And Gary Salzman had specifically brought me on because of the fact that I was so different and brought such a different vibe to the EDM um, trance and sort of uh, drum and bass scenes. And I just, folks kept coming back. Now, FAR specifically kind of blew up and opened the doors for me to do a lot more in trance and to do a lot more um, in some of the more niche EDM genres. Um, us leading the charge of like, listen, you need to check out this Lachi chick. Her voice is different. Her stories are different. And um, you're just going to enjoy it. And the more you collaborate with people, the more you really enjoy collaborating with folks, I think. I love that. 
You were nominated for your second independent music award for your acapella arrangement of the song Money by Cardi B. Do you know if Cardi's aware of your version? So we got in um, all, was it all hip hop or some hip hop magazine um, and her team responded to it and just kind of was like, this is cool. So we do know her team has, is aware of it, but I will say like Cardi herself hasn't been like, yo, Lachi, that was a dope drop. Um, that would be amazing, but we're still waiting for that phone call. I would say, yes, she's <laughs> aware because the team definitely forwarded it to her then. Yeah, Cardi, send send me more tracks, girl. We'll go ahead and acapella all you want. <laughs> I love it. So I am so sorry to hear that your previous manager passed away not all that long ago. What did losing such a key, me- key team member teach you in addition to, of course, the emotional loss of someone I'm sure you were very close with? Yeah, so it was Gary Salzman who I had signed to and, you know, I was following along with this spiraling fun journey. Um, you know, after signing with Gary, we really delved into the EDM scene. Um, we worked with Marcus Schultz. We got the mix with Armin Van Buren. We worked with Matic, who is a huge name in drum and bass. We worked with Styles P, who is pretty much a hip hop legend. We worked with so many names during that time and we toured. We did a bunch of shows. We went out to Amsterdam together. He got me on the radio. We did it. We did a lot. Um, and one day he got COVID and passed away right at the top of COVID. And it was interesting because it was right around that time when I was starting, he and I had this really in-depth discussion where he said, you know, you're doing really well, you know, you're doing, you're doing really well, but you know, what's the bigger story? Mm -hmm. Um, And I told him, look, I have a disability. I'm blind. I've been afraid to really talk about it and put it out there. Um, So there that's, that's what my bigger story is, but I'm afraid to tell it. Um, and he said, well, you may be in a place now that you can. Um, and so I started getting things in gear to try to do that. And we were trying to make plans, but we didn't know how to do it, you know? Um, and then he passed away. Um, and it was hard. Um, and it was sad. Um, and I went through it, but it did open up a few things. Um, it opened up my mind of, what I did want to do, how I did want to approach talking about my disability, talking about um, my bigger and broader self, other than just the fact that I'm a vocalist, a singer, and a songwriter from New York, and embracing all of the different parts of myself. That epiphany came um, through that catalyst that was uh, Gary's passing, definitely rest his soul. Um, And I have him partially to thank for that conversation that we had Uh, Because, I mean, he did say, you know, look, you're in a place where you can do this. Mm -hmm. And that was really helpful to hear. Uh, But I did have to find that sort of freedom to take that next step and really step into myself. So I do look at it as as a loss, but I look at it with gratitude. And I know Gary would be smiling down upon all of the successes um, that, you know, his influence um, has has brought for me. A hundred percent. So you've touched on this a little bit and you kind of just answered this question, but you originally hid, in many ways, hid that you were blind in your career. So when did you really, quote, come out and share your disability with the world publicly? Yeah. So I, you know, as a legally blind person, 
Uh, my vision is much worse than it used to be, but I could pass for not blind. So I, I would call myself sighted passing. Mm-hmm. Um, and things would happen like, you know, look, I would trip on wires or I would trip all over the booth or I would not know where things were. And, you know, people weren't generally mean to me about it. But as I got into these bigger rooms, people felt uncomfortable or like something's off, but they don't get it or they don't know or they don't understand. Or when I would go to networking events, it was really difficult for me to try to talk to people in dark spaces or where do I stand on the carpet? How do, who do I look at? Am I weird looking? Like, how do I do this thing? Um, and I had no idea how to penetrate that. And I kept blaming my own internalized ableism, you know, of, oh, you're just, you're weird. You're different, you know, just, you know, slink into the background. And really it was because society taught me that it's weird to talk about your disability um, and that, you know, externalized, ableist view, I internalized of myself. And after Gary passed, I thought, you know what, the only way I'm going to get accommodations for navigating the studio, the only way I'm going to be able to start really shaking hands at these networking events is if I come out about my disability. And in thinking that, I thought to myself, well, and where is everybody else? Why is society telling us not to say this? So it started with me speaking on different panels about my disability um, and really slowly coming out about it socially and publicly. Um, I think one of the, if I can give a quick antidote, please. one of the big ones was, one of the big ones was, so Women in Music, which is a really awesome organization. If you are a woman professional, you should definitely join Women in Music. Um, they had this amazing panel at 2020. I think it was July 2020 or something. And they were talking about diversity. And during that panel, they were talking about race and gender and, you know, LGBTQ rights and things like that. And I was just an audience member and I was in the chat and I was writing like, hello, can someone talk about disability? And none of the panelists responded, right? And they were responding to like other things happening in the chat. And so I kept going like, hello, I think that we should discuss disability in this panel. And no one was saying anything. So then I started, I got like upset. Like, I don't know what came over me, but I started like copying and pasting whole articles and like charts and like wiki pages and going, someone talk about this. Finally, somebody in the panel mentions like, and we should definitely also include disability like someone has mentioned in the chat. (laughs) Um, After that panel, Women in Music contacts me to do a disability panel. And I was like, oh, crap. I felt like so embarrassed. I was like, so they actually read all that stuff I put in there? Um, I host this panel. And it that was sort of the beginning of me publicly talking about disability in the music industry from a music industry standpoint, you know, not from like music education or parents trying to help their kids get instruments. I mean, from professionals out in the music industry who have a disability or neurodiversity and want to talk about it. Um, and so really, that was kind of all she wrote in terms of me talking about disability in music and me paneling um, and speaking on that topic outside of music and beyond. Gosh, you are just so inspiring how you continue to put yourself out there and you do so in such an authentic way. You know, you weren't in that chat being like, you know, because we need to do a panel or you need to talk to me or whatever. It's like you just you were doing the right thing, you know, and it's it's led to so much. Um 
You know, tell us about your powerful track released last year called Say the Words. Ah, yes. So uh, by the time I released Say the Words, I was well ensconced in talking about my disability and really pairing my disability with my releases and saying like, hey, this is the conversation that I'm having right now, but also I want to put out like really fun, catchy tunes. And so I wrote this track, Say the Words, because I personally always feel a little bit of cringe when people say things like differently abled or handicapable. Mm-hmm. I'm always like, dude, I'm an adult. I'm literally not six years old. So <laughs> let's not use euphemisms like that. And I always encourage people to just say the word disability. Um, and so I paired it with, um, so I wrote this track called Say the Word. And while it doesn't harp on, hello, say the word about disability, um, it is just a fun track about, hey, say the word love. You act like you love me, so say the words. And I was a little hesitant. I was like, okay, so I'm finally putting out a track that's sort of nodding my disability, um, yet still having that sort of EDM pop funk flair that I like to put out there. Um, We went to um, Blanco y Negro, and we were just like, I'm going to put this out. Um, And Blanco y Negro is, um, you know, one of the bigger sort of independent EDM labels. Mm -hmm. Um, And they were just like, yes. (laughs) And, you know, I the positive response um, that I've been getting from the music industry, um, even though I'm talking about my disability, has just been so awesome. So um, Blanco y Negro was like, yeah, we're going to put it out. They put it out. Um, The song is in homage to Lawrence Carter Long, who is um, sort of a disability rights um, leader who put out the discussion of just say the word. Um, And so to be able to marry my love for just writing cheeky EDM songs and discussing disability uh, was married with that track. Incredible. Did, did being listed as one of the New York Times 28 ways to learn about disability culture impact your career? Yes. Um, so that listing, okay, that listing was probably one of the first sort of major Lachi is an established person in disability. Um, that listing really allowed people to go, oh, wow, okay, so Lachi is not just a singer who sings about disability, but she's also a disability advocate who sings. Um, and so it was huge. I mean, it was it was in the New York Times, um, and it was published during Disability Pride Month. So while, as much as I can't stand Affinity Month, um, all eyes were sort of on disability during the month of July. That's when that article came out. And so people's phones started ringing, uh, emails started coming in going, who are you and what do you do? We wanna know more about you. The New York Times told us that you knew about disability. So tell us about disability. And the funny thing about it is, is that I didn't really have my, my disability platform yet. Now, today I talk about disability identity and culture, right? I love to focus on society. I like to focus on ableism. Um, back then I was like, yeah, I'm disabled. Yeah, bro. Um, so as I was shaping things out yet again, um, getting the big thing and then learning how to handle it um, was what happened there. But it was definitely like a huge boon in terms of my, you know, my journey through becoming a disability advocate and leader in that space. Absolutely. So what was it like hosting the pilot episode of the PBS series Renegades? Ooh. 
Yeah, that was um, an honor. Um, just, you know, growing up super duper shy and afraid to talk about disability and afraid to talk about anything and having like not a lot of friends. <laughs> and, you know, just, I I've always kind of been sort of a songwriter and vocalist in the studio, sort of in the background. Um, that was a huge opportunity. Um, it started with my YouTube series that I had called um, Black Girl Going Blind, um, Offbeat, Black Girl Going Blind. And someone from PBS, Day Al Muhammad, who actually now works at the White House. I got friends in the White House. Um, Day Al Muhammad at that time was working with PBS on putting together this episode. And she came across my YouTube series, which was really just me interviewing other blind people or other advocates. And I was interviewing just like politicians. And the, the, the YouTube series was like varying degrees of success. Like one episode that had Molly Burke, who is just this big YouTuber, had like 7,000 views, which we celebrated. Another episode, which had like a local comptroller, had 300 views. So it was like varying degrees of success. But they found me and they were like, we love your hosting skills. We had um, a bunch of hosts that they wanted us to choose from, but we like that you're authentically disabled and blind. We like that you're a black female and we wanna give um, some rise to that. Uh, but we also just love your energy and we love your positivity. Do you wanna do this? We're gonna fly you out. I was like, uh, I went to my manager and I was like, do we do this? Am I a host? Like, <laughs> and he was like, absolutely. So I go out and it's sort of the first of my big sort of very public um, non-scripted hosting gigs. And we're talking about disability. We're celebrating disabled renegades in that episode. Um, and it was such a delight getting to work with Day Al Muhammad. She is a superstar and I'm going to be doing more stuff with her. Hope she's watching. Day, can I do another project with you? Um, so yeah, I, it was a phenomenal experience and I, of course a huge boost to the resumes. Incredible. Thank you for forming Ramped, which is the Recording Artists and Music Professionals with Disabilities, where you've collaborated with mm -hmm. the Recording Academy to make the Grammy Awards more accessible by working to add a visible, a visible stage ramp, sign language interpreters, mm -hmm. live captioning, audio description, and ASL on the red carpet. What is the latest with Ramped and how can folks get involved to support the crucial work you all are doing? So this is where I, I love it when the interview gets here. So <laughs> ramped.org, we are a global network of music talent and music industry professionals. So whether you're an artist, whether you're a producer, whether you're an agent, whether you're an administrator that works for a label um, who identify as having a disability, whether it's a mobile disability and neurodiversity, whether it's a chronic illness, whether it's rare disease, whether it's immunodeficiency, hey, whether it is long COVID, whether you're deaf or hard of hearing, we want you. And what, what RAMPT really does, um, apart from the very crucial point of offering community, which is huge. When I first came out about my disability, my first thought was, where's everybody else? Like me and Stevie Wonder, really, is that it? So... What we offer is community for professionals in this space. And we collaborate with other organizations, firms, and production houses in the music space to make 
the music industry, the entertainment industry, the performance industry, and the TV and gaming industry as it pertains to music, um, not only more accessible, but more inclusive of people with disabilities um, and to encourage more ideas of belonging and disability culture. Yes, we worked with the Grammys, which is our hugest client, um, to make the Grammys more accessible. As Emily mentioned earlier, we just came back from a very successful and fun uh, Grammys that included a lot of our access needs. Uh, but not only that, there was a lot of behind the scenes training and consultation that we also did. Um, there is a Hollywood Reporter article floating around that really talks about it. And it was a joint article between us and the Recording Academy. So a very beautiful relationship. But apart from that, we also offer visibility to folks with disabilities in the music industry. Um, we've collaborated with Netflix to offer some programming for TV and film composers. We've collaborated with folk.org, which is the international folk Alliance. We've collaborated with the National Independent Venue Association, um, with Sona. We're right now in talks with um, Golden Voices um, Accessibility Plus discussion to help uh, BIPOC disabled individuals uh, be able to attend Coachella and some of the other uh, festivals that Coachella puts on. We're right now talking to um, Music Forward, which is Live Nation's um, charitable arm. And so we're we're everywhere. And one of the reasons that Ramped is growing so extensively and so quickly is guess what? Because we're the only ones doing this and we are the premier and we are the first and we're very polished. We just had our website launched. So if you check us out at ramped.org, R-A-M-P-D.org, you can support us um, by making a donation or honestly, by letting your musician friend or your industry artist friend know that we exist and to have them come join our community because we're only going to be as strong as our professional members and this is the reason we are able to knock down these doors because we are getting some really amazing people come into our doors we have galen lee we have adrian anantawan who is a touring musician and a music educator and a TEDx speaker. Again, Galen Lee is also a touring musician who won Tiny Desk. Um, we have folks from Four Wheel City. Four Wheel City uh, has performed at the White House and at the UN, uh, like myself. We have myself. Uh, we have Stephen Letness, who's worked on Emmy-nominated films. We have Leroy Moore, who is a revered disability rights advocate and poet. Um, and of course, we have all of these amazing um the, these amazing uh, sponsorships and partnerships that we've done. And so we're super excited. And of course, we're being recognized. We have articles and Billboard and Forbes and everywhere. We've just recently been recognized by the UN. Um, we have got a Zero Project Award for our efforts, sort of breaking down the barriers for musicians within the music industry. And of course, there's so much more in the pipeline that I wish I could say right now because there's so much happening and we're so super excited. And it just gets me so jazzed and I've, you, you can see I'm super passionate about it because I was just like, I am disabled and I'm afraid and there's ableism in the music industry. What do I do? And now there's ramped. <laughs> just incredible. And I thought of someone that I need to tell about Ramped, who's a major music industry executive. And, um, you know, with everything you were just talking about, you, you said something like, we're everywhere. I almost feel like that could be Ramped's slogan, you know? <laughs> and it's so... Uh, yeah. Yeah, go ahead. 
No, I was going to say, actually, that's really smart. You go ahead and IP that before I steal it, because <laughs> at the end of the day, disabled folks are everywhere. Yes. We're one in four. So if you look to your left, you look to your right, you look in front of you, you look behind you in a crowd, at least one person has some form of disability. And then there are non-visible disabilities. And 75% of folks with disabilities have non-visible disabilities. So disabilities everywhere. And frankly, you, yourself, um, you as in everybody watching, you may have a disability and not actually know it. You may be struggling with something um, and find that, hey, uh, I'm afraid to tell my supervisor at work yeah. or I'm afraid to ask for accommodations. Um, well, we're here to yeah. be that community where you can bounce those ideas off of us. We can help you advocate for things like that. Um, disability is everywhere. Yeah, and so the, the executive that I'm thinking of I hope this wouldn't happen now because it was a few years ago, but it's just like such a reminder on like why the visibility at like of the work you're doing is so important because you are like everywhere right now. Like you're at the White House and you're at the Grammys and I'm so proud of you. But, you know, this is a, this is a I don't even want to say what category the industry is in because, you know, I want to talk to him about this first. But um you know, he, he's really respected. He's at a major music company. He's developed a chronic illness over the past few years. And he met with his, uh, the head of this major music company who said to him something like, um, well, I'm concerned about your health impacting your work. I mean, it was like more direct than that. And my friend was like, I wish I was recording that conversation. Like what he, I'm not even like doing the conversation justice, but what was said to him was so illegal. And like I said, I don't, this wasn't that long ago. It was only a few years ago, but Mm -hmm. I don't know if that conversation would happen now. And that is in large part because of the work you are doing. Um, So everyone is, you know, embracing, uh, you know, inclusivity. So- Yeah. And I want to say to that individual, I am really sorry that that happened to you. That should not have happened to you. It doesn't matter where uh, and what level of the industry you're at. It doesn't matter. Like I said, if you're an artist or if you're an executive, that should not happen to you. Those conversations should not happen. And yes, they're illegal. Now us at Ramped, we do focus, like Emily said, we focus a lot more on visibility, representation, culture, and belonging, because we feel that We need to have folks see disability. Um, We've learned that, you know, the whole idea of everyone has a Black person in their life. Everybody has an LGBTQ person in their life. And knowing someone personally helps flip things around. Well, we want to start being in folks' living rooms, in folks' radio stations, and on their playlists so they can start supporting folks in their life that have a disability and start changing that narrative. Whether it's a disabled person seeing them self, whether it's a chronically ill person, seeing themselves on TV, hearing themselves on the radio, seeing themselves winning awards um, in order to encourage them like, hey, that can be me. Or whether it's non-disabled folks recognizing that this is a legitimate diversity. We're all born with different bodies and different minds that we come in. And that should be celebrated because guess what? I didn't celebrate my disability or my blindness for a long time. And I was ashamed of it. And now I'm not ashamed of it, Mm -hmm. but I'm still blind. So obviously it's not the disability that's the problem. It's society. And that's what we're here to change at Ramped. That's right. So one last question before I dig into the revenue stream checklist with you. 
Can you sure. share can you share your experiences performing at places like the White House, the UN, the Kennedy Center and Lincoln Center? Yeah. So I mean, it's so we'll start with the White House. Let's get that one out of the way. But I got to say part of my advocacy as a person um, who is blind is just my personality, my fashion sense and Anyone who follows me knows I do this whole thing where I have uh, my blind canes are all glammed and blinged out. Um, I always show up like head to toe, fancily dressed, and I always have a big personality and I'm always everybody's best friend. Um, That's actually part of my advocacy. Um, I want people to see me celebrating disability and celebrating my, my mobility device. I want people to feel comfortable coming up to me and saying hello. Um, And so the reason I say this is because we went to the White House and yes, we got to discuss disability. We got to discuss the ADA. We got to meet with Biden. But the really cool part of it is we got dressed head to toe in red, white, and blue. We had red, white, and blue makeup. We had a red, white, and blue cane. I mean, we were to the nines in red, white, and blue celebrating disability fashion, celebrating all of our access as art and that ended up being kind of the talk of the day <laughs> from Biden himself going like, yeah, this getup is like totally dope to all of the staff, everybody else just around. And <clears throat> I mentioned that. And, oh, look, look at this. My manager is on point. <laughs> so this is the red, white and blue cane. Beautiful. Um, and then there's the where's this is the red and then this is the blue. And it's like this. This is the kind of stuff that we do. Just these little shenanigans, um, which brings me to our sort of performing at the UN, performing at the Kennedy Center, performing at Lincoln Center, uh, speaking and performing at like Amazon and TD Bank and all of these places where we go. The way that I do my sort of speaking and performing is what I'll do is I'll storytell my experience or my teachings or whatever I was brought there to talk about, whether it's disability identity and culture, whether it's my come up as a musician, whether it's how I, you know, utilize my uniqueness to propel my career, we'll go there, we'll bring a keyboard or we'll bring a DJ and do a live set, but we will intersperse the storytelling with the music. And I got to say, I know we're going to talk about revenue streams, but gosh darn, is that a revenue stream? Um, it's a unique product. Um, it is something that you really can only get from Lachi because we don't, I don't put out piano albums anymore. You're only going to get me at a piano doing a storytelling set live at these shows. And I don't know, we get to talk about disability and, and people just keep calling and wanting it because it is also a corporate tool for fo- folks to use as their sort of like disability measure or their DEI measure. And so it's it's just been wild to be able to bring this to like a music firm, bring it to a nightclub or venue, and then also bring the same thing to the UN or like Amazon. <laughs> so it's, it's it's been a whirlwind. I can't, I cannot complain. I cannot complain. I think one of the best things I love currently about my career is doing my keynote concerts. Well, and imagine if the major music company that my friend worked at had experienced one of those keynote concerts, maybe that conversation never would have happened. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, I think the the best thing about what I do and what we're doing at Ramped um, is that we're showcasing disability in a really fun, positive and polished light. And we're showcasing like, hey, you know, first of all, we're in a, in a society where asynchronous work is becoming the norm anyway. Yeah. So what are we even hybrid work is becoming the norm anyway. And respecting each other can be freaking fun and sexy and awesome. And you will be rewarded for it. Yeah. So folks who embrace disability in their talent pool, they see more productivity by like 72%. That's just literally a department of labor stat. Like that's just a stat. People who embrace disability in their work culture, they have higher retention of their good workers. People who embrace disability culture um, have folks who don't have disability feel more safe. They feel safer at their workplace. And so, oh, and lastly, um, the Gen Z population who will soon become the folks with the purse strings, as well as uh, the millennial population, they love social causes everywhere from sustainability to disability. And we're learning that when companies embrace sustainability, when companies embrace green, when companies embrace um, LGBTQ and when they embrace disability, uh, it affects their bottom line. Absolutely. Wow. Well, Lachi, I've known you a long time. I don't know anyone that works harder and I'm so happy for you and all of your success. You deserve all of it and more. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. That means a lot from you, actually. Absolutely. <laughs> so let's dig in on the revenue stream checklist. I'd love to help bring to life, um, you know, the list that I gave um, to see if, you know, if, if you're doing some of this stuff instead of it just being like a list to everyone. Yeah. Um, so first I have yes. the, I have the 10 revenue streams, um, that are generally owed to artists who write, not generally, cause mm -hmm. you know, anyway, in my opinion, 10 revenue streams that are yeah. owed to artists who write record slash release and play live. Um, so the first one is right. direct to fan. Do you sell music on your website and or on Bandcamp? I do have a Bandcamp, Um, but sadly a lot of my, well, it's not sadly, it's actually, pretty kind of cool, but a lot of my songs are label released. Yeah. Right. So a lot of those we work together to sell or, uh, they go through our distributor. Yeah. Um, but I will say that we do sell our, like our latest release, black girl cornrows. Um, that is completely owned by us. So we do have the freedom to sell that. And, um, funnily enough, that is the one that discusses my disability and my blackness and my queerness. So we get to do full campaigns around it. And I think the best thing about it is, is, you know, it's a song that is so near and dear to who I am and I get to make the most money off of it. So it's really nice. Like labels can't like that. I, it can't be like, Oh, where's my money? Or, Oh, you're mistreating the song in a way that I don't like. It's like, it's our song. We get to sell it. We get to make money off of it. So um, I always encourage folks like, if you have your song that you want to make sure you get out and you don't want to deal with the 1 million hoops and jumps and skips and bumps, um, put it out yourself because at the end of the day, um, your fans are going to buy it. Um, and you are going to get more money. Even if you just have like 15 fans buy it, <laughs> than if you release yeah. it through like, uh, 17 walls and pockets of folks kind of like digging their niblets into your song. 
Oh my gosh. It's so true. Um, I mean, just quickly on that, I, it's amazing. Well, I had the privilege of interviewing Seth Godin on the I Voted podcast, and he taught me something about an artist that I know so much about. And I think I shared this on this podcast, but when Amanda Palmer was signed to um, a major label subsidiary, her solo album sold 20,000 copies, and that was a flat-out failure to them, to, to the label. Um, but then when she mm-hmm. raised over a million dollars on Kickstarter, she had 20,000 backers, right? So it's exactly what you're saying, right. you know, it depends on right. how you're doing things. And you also reminded me, I've had a lot of conversations with labels over the years, um, convincing them to get the artist music on Bandcamp. Cause all I really needed to say was, um, and I'm sure this number is higher now, I believe Bandcamp has brought in over a hundred million dollars in revenue, so like, why would you not, mm-hmm. if you're a label, why would you not? Well, I, I, I kind of understand their thinking, but it doesn't really it make doesn't. sense because your job is to make as, most, as much money for the recording as possible. So just know that you can have that conversation um, with your label. So the next one, which you just touched on is distribution. Obviously for your catalog releases on labels, they, you know, they handle that distribution. But how did you distribute your, your most recent track you know, to Spotify and, and all the digital service providers? Yeah, for this latest one, we actually used United Masters um, <clears throat> because they focus, they have a good focus on sort of like hip hop and niche sort of alt hip hop sort of things. Um, and Black Girl Cornrows is kind of like a pop rap meets EDM sort of tune. And they are really excited for celebrating uh, blackness, queerness. And that's what that song celebrates. So we worked with them. However, there are a lot of really good distributors out there and they stand for different things. Like you don't always have to go to the big generics, like the distro kids. Um, There's, there's a few out there that specialize in, um, I know that label, I believe it's, is it label works? Label Um, engine. They do label engine. Yeah. Yeah, They do a lot of my friends, um, a lot of my EDM friends. And, you know, a lot of these, a lot of these distributors have humans like (laughs) that you can talk to and try to get and try to get things done. Um, so I'm never going to knock self-distributing uh, because, uh, again, it's it's not as you don't make as much money, I guess, as if you just literally say, "Hello, fan, pay me 99 cents off my website." Yeah. Um, but in some cases, you do. In some cases, you know, perhaps you pay a monthly or yearly fee, but then you get all your revenue. Um, and then a lot of these distributors, they have other arms. They have a publishing arm or they'll administer your stuff. And so I say definitely look into the one where you feel best fits the needs for your music because they are looking for you. Yeah. And also it's not, you know, either or in my opinion, have your music for sale on your website and on Bandcamp and distribute through the right distribution partner to get get on all the DSPs. Um, Are you Mm -hmm. on Patreon? I was actually on Patreon for a while. So I had this, um, and I'm still there actually, but we're not pushing the project as hard as we did. But when we were doing the acapella project, which we called Blackapella, which is where we did the money acapella that won uh, awards and was nominated for an independent music award. um, We had a Patreon of folks like, hey, as we do this project, please support it, come through. And we raised a good amount of funds and I still have some backers on there going like, hey, we love what you're doing and we still support you. 
The beautiful thing about Patreon is several fold. Number one, it's like an everlasting Kickstarter, right? You can sit there and continue to raise funds and build up a fan base and allow your fans to get to know you on whatever amount of level you want them to. You can bring them in, have, um, so I have a ton of content. And like, of course, you have to keep your Instagram polished and your Twitter polished. But the fun thing, well, who uses Twitter anymore? But the fun thing about Patreon is that you can take all of your unused content uh, and give it to your fan base. It's like a back room. It's almost like a green room for you to hang out with your fans. And, you know, they could just pay a dollar a month or they could pay $50 a month, however much they support your situation. So we did our whole big push, a big Patreon push during that acapella um, release. And it was fully supported. Like we didn't have to come out of pocket for it because of Patreon. And you know, what might be cool too, like for any of your speaking engagements uh, where they'll let you do this, like share one of the, you know, um, speaking engagements with your Patreon too, just surprise them. Cause they're, they might not have access, obviously they might not be at Google or Amazon or something, you know, if, if they let you do that. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I'll do things like one of the things that I really like to do is um, surprise folks with our different looks. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of times we'll do a look before we do the look, if that makes sense. So I'll like try on the outfit that we're going to have and I'll have the cane and we'll have the makeup um, and we'll show our sort of like VIP fan folks what the look's going to be. So they're like, Ooh, I know what Lachi's going to wear. Um, so, so yeah, it's, it's, it's a good look. Fantastic. Um, which performing rights organization are you with? So I'm with BMI and I mean, they're all great, right? Uh, but I'm with BMI. And um, one of the good things I like about BMI is they, they do have a hefty like New York presence. Yeah. Um, so they do songwriter circles. There are human beings. There are folks that you can talk to over there. Um, and so I've been with BMI uh, my entire career. Love it. Um, how do you collect on your publishing beyond that? So we, uh, I've... So I was actually with big management as my publishing administrator for, you know, up until very recently, we're actually going to be moving our catalog um, finally. And I hope I'm not talking too soon or out of turn because we haven't signed anything. Can't say it. Okay. But we are about to sign. We are about to sign with a new publisher, uh, publishing administrator and publishing company um, so that we can make sure that all of our um, royalties are collected, make sure all of our, regular rights or neighboring rights are collected um, and make sure it's like just beyond just the BMI stuff. Um, Because every once in a while I have seen, and this has happened like on a regular basis. I'm not even going to say that this is rare on a regular basis. I'll look at my BMI statement uh, and then our publishing administrator will have collected like other things that didn't make it onto BMI. Yeah. Just because, you know, you need like almost like a hunter out there. Yeah. BMI and ASCAP, they're great, but they sort of have like algorithmic, you know, they're trying to catch all for the, you know, hundreds of whatever thousands, millions or whatever musicians that they have on there. Whereas your publisher or your administrator is going to be hunting for their roster. And so a lot of times we'll see other stuff that wasn't on our BMI royalty sheet. And you really, really don't want to lose those things because they add up. 
That's right. So you, you need, I know I've said this a million times, but it's just so important. You need a publishing administrator or in addition to your performing rights organization. So if your music is being covered, streamed, sold, doing anything international, which is pretty much everyone, then you need to be with Song Trust or you need to find a publishing administrator. That's exactly right. Are you signed up for Sound Exchange? Yes, I am. Come on, girl. <laughs> no, I know. <laughs> You've been doing this long enough. But yeah, I, you, but you know what? A lot of people aren't. Yeah. And a lot of people don't recognize that like internet plays and internet streams, which are like not not your average, like the big Spotify and the big Apples, yeah. uh, but it's played everywhere. It's yeah. played all over the internet. And you're going to be missing out on those internet streams um, if you're not sound, signed up to sound, uh, song ex- sound exchange, I think sound exchange is just as important as being signed up to your PRO. Yep, exactly. And that's another one where if you don't sign up within a few years, you don't get that money. So sign up, people. Um, do you sell merch online? We do sell merch online. And my manager's been good at bringing stuff. I wanted him <laughs> to bring my sweater. Do you have my sweater? We do sell merch online. We sell little lachi things here and there. In fact, I'm actually wearing uh, one of the lachi earrings that we sell. Um, but we have a, what do we use? We Shopify to sell our online merch. And then we're able to bring our QR codes. Oh, here we go. <laughs> so recently we did Black Girl Cornrows. And so we put together uh, an amazing sweatshirt that we're selling. And the sweatshirt's got my face on it because I'm singing on it. The arm has one of the rappers question who featured on it. You can't really see it very well. And the other arm has Evie Oddly, who won RuPaul's Drag Race. Uh, There she is, um, featured on the song as well. We're selling these and we're just so excited about these because people see me walking down the street and they're just like your faces on your chest, by the way. I don't know if you noticed. Um, But of course, we're selling hats, T-shirts, all other sorts of things. And we actually do really well because what? Oh, okay. We also, we actually do really well because we tour. Um, It's like, it's like, if you're going to tour, have merch, period. Like period, period. Like it's just don't tour without it because A, people, when you impact them, they want a piece of you to take with them, right? Um, And if it's something physical that's there, that's probably your your best situation um, because even if they don't buy it, uh, they might buy something online if you've got your QR code ready or if you've got your sort of square ready for them to buy something online at your shows. Just don't even tour without any kind of merch. I mean, I'm not your mom. I can't tell you what to do. <laughs> but I have found that sometimes I don't have the inventory, right, yeah. for a show. But we'll always have that QR code yeah. or that square for folks to swipe um, so that they can they can get our merchandise and have it shipped to them or whatever because you just made their life for like an hour and they want to take you home with them. And I just, I can't say enough about making sure you have that ready and that set up, especially if you're going to tour. I love that. Can you do the glammed bedazzled canes or is that too height specific? So we actually do have the glammed canes um, online. Um, People can buy those on Shopify. In fact, um, we're, we're actually selling those and they're not doing so bad. Um, they are made to order though. Yeah. So you can't just, there's not like a one size fits all. Right. Uh, we do allow people to pick different colors um, and stuff like that. Now that is not something we sell live, but we mm-hmm. do bring them so that folks can kind of swipe in and we can walk them through the process of 
figuring out exactly what color they want, what size they need, or they can just purchase it online through our website and our Shopify. Yeah, we're all glam canes here. We are definitely all about the glam canes. I'm trying to, and you know what's so funny? You know, Arthur. Arthur's yeah. my manager. He actually makes the glam canes um, and the glitter canes and the, the rhinestone canes. I've been trying to convince him to go beyond just canes and like, hey, let's get glammed, you know, hearing aids or let's get glammed out like wheelchair seat wheels or whatever. God, imagine like chrome, um, chrome wheelchair wheels or something. I don't know, whatever. So <laughs> we'll see how far this goes. You guys are part along for the journey. <laughs> get yourself a manager that, that, that will make your uh, handmade rhinestone uh, canes. That's for sure. <laughs> so, um, you obviously do in real life live shows. How often are you playing live? I mean, you're also playing live in your speaking engagement. So, um, but do you do like, you know, public ticketed concerts still? Because I feel like you're so busy. Well, right now we're not doing ticketed concerts, yeah. um, but we have every intention. We've done it in the past. We have every intention to um, once we release the album that we're working on, um, which big plug, we're working on an album called Mad Different, which kind of um, celebrates um, blackness, queerness, disability, and just talks junk about everything. Very counterculture, very pop meets EDM, very infiltration of freak culture. So check it out. And once we release that album, um, we do want to make sure that we have um, a very high visible tour, high visibility tour, where we celebrate those things. So that isn't the works. That is in the works. Um, but right now, with everything that we're doing, um, we are, a lot of our touring are these keynote concerts. Yeah. Um, they keep the lights on. They keep the bills on. We have, like, you know, I have a whole team of folks that, you know, <laughs> need to pay their bills. So I need to go find out ways to pay them. And that's what these keynote concerts do. But I will say that I just, I, I straight up just sell my regular Lachi merch yeah. at these concerts. Um, and I, you know, we, we hand out ramped pamphlets. Like it's a whole 360 situation um, because they, you know, they're there to, to hear my message and see me. So why don't get, why not give them an experience to go home with? That's right. And finally, from this first list, are, do you do any sort of ticketed webcasts? Uh, I do not actually do that, but I will say that I have partnered with a bunch of folks that do. Yeah. Um, I've been on a ton of other artists' concerts um, where they bring me in to um, perform on their ticketed thing. And then I get, you know, a percent of um, what comes through or or they'll hire me on to do it. Um, a lot of sort of um, different booking agencies or promotional agencies, they'll have online concerts and they'll call me up and they'll say, hey, do you want to be a part of it? Um, so while we haven't done our own, yeah. um, that was like a Lachi specific one, I have been a part of several and many, and I've seen them work. And I got to say, one of the best things that I love about the online concerts is A, the accessibility. So folks yeah. who are homebodies, folks who don't kick it out, maybe due to COVID or chronic illness or just screw it. They don't feel like going anywhere. Uh, kids, whatever. Uh, they can enjoy your concert and they don't have to buy a plane ticket. They don't have to drive out. Um, but secondly is the chat. The chat is gold. I have found that chats are gold. Here's something you need to do in your chat when you have an at-home concert. Promote the crap out of yourself. Like do, uh, what, what do you call those things? Do trivia stuff for people to sign up to your mailing list, do merch giveaways 
for people to go to your website. Um, constantly remind people what your socials are in the chat. Keep the chat popping. That is the gold of at-home concerts. And and you know, if even if it's a ticketed concert, you can still throw in your donation button. Um, I've seen that work like time and time again. And now, especially if you have like an eager, rabid fan base. Um, this works really well. But honestly, even if you're just passing through, even if you don't have that much of a fan base, I've seen concerts that only had like 30 or 24 people in the live just blow up because the couple of people in there are sharing the amazing experience they're having on socials as it's happening. That's right. So, yeah. Thank you. Um, you mentioned neighboring rights. Have you recorded outside of the U.S.? Oh, girl, that's my whole thing. Yeah, that is my whole thing because I do um, EDM collaborations. I work with folks from, you know, Holland or Germany or England or Uganda, South Africa, like all over the place. Um, and, you know, I don't think you spent enough time on talking about the AMFA and yeah. the NIB and anybody who knows those letters <laughs> knows that. Listen, when we talk about music advocacy, um, the fact that America is listed in something with North Korea and Iran is probably not a good look. Why aren't you paying your artists for playing on the radio? If you think about it, the radio gets money from commercials, from advertising, and they're using your product as the thing that they're getting, so why aren't you getting any of that ad revenue? So I'm not going to go too into it because I, we could just do a whole podcast on this. But if for whatever reason you want yourself paid, if you're ever played on the, you know, people think, people think, oh my God, I'm on the radio. Now I'm going to be rich. Nope. <laughs> you got to do the other 20 things Emily listed because being played on the radio is not one, at least not right now. And we're fighting to make sure it becomes one. Yeah. And I know like we could also do a podcast episode on this, but it's Super Bowl weekend. You know, Rihanna's not going to get, not only is Rihanna not going to get paid to do the Super Bowl, even though anyone would do that gig. Imagine the hundreds of thousands of dollars she has to pay her crew and travel and band mm -hmm. or dancers mm -hmm. or whatever. So it's like the exposure box, um, you know, thing happens at every level, even, even when you're playing the Super Bowl. But it, okay. So that, those are all really good points as far as neighboring rights go. Um, did your previous publishing administrator collect those neighboring rights? Or do you know if you had a separate neighboring rights deal to collect those royalties? Actually, uh, big management did collect nice. neighboring rights yeah. um, because of the fact that they specialized in EDM, trance, and house. And that's a very European situation. Um, they did actually specialize in collecting neighboring rights. And our new publisher that we're dealing with right now also collects neighboring cool. rights. So we want to make sure... Um, it is very, I mean, I make sure that neighboring rights is important because I know that I work internationally a lot and my music is played on international radio all the time. Like we'll debut on, you know, Danish dance charts and stuff like that. Um, but outside of the fact that I collaborate with so many folks internationally, it's important to, to have uh, the neighboring rights collected uh, because you just never know when your song is going to be played on the radio. And they don't pay us back, by the way. Uh, you know what? Actually, don't. What I was about to say was just going to get way too into the weeds. Um, but make sure that you have your neighboring rights set up. Yeah. I have my neighboring rights set up because I know that my music is played over there. Um, and I believe that everybody else should definitely have the neighboring rights set up. 
A hundred percent. I was about to get into the, I was about to get into the weeds on the AMFA again. Cause I'm still like shaking over how like upset I get when I talk about it. <laughs> I think you did a good job though. And I touched on it earlier. So I feel like we understand okay. that we don't want, you know, it's the U S North Korea Emily's and Iran. Like, we get it. The- yeah, no, but you're right. It is a separate <laughs> yes, podcast exactly. episode and we'll bring you back to talk about that. Um, so we just have the bonus revenue stream list to cover and then we'll let everyone get on with their weekend. Um, do you do any sort of VIP live show offerings, either in real life or via webcast? Um, I have not recently. Um, I have done in the past, um, a lot actually. Uh, we haven't done it so much recently just because of our, our schedule and just because of a lot of the things that we have going on. Um, but I have done things where we'll send out specifically to our mailing list or whether it's regional Um, so we'll set up our, we have our mailing list set up by region and state and things like that. And we'll send out a show going like, Hey, we're doing like a private, um, Thanksgiving show, you know, come on out. This is specifically for fans. Uh, this is for specifically for folks on the newsletter, et cetera, et cetera. And, and the great thing about it is, is because it's exclusive because it's VIP, I've come to find that more people actually do come out or like engage, uh, because they know that it's exclusive. Um, so they're like, ooh, we get to, to watch an exclusive show. We want to come and check it out. Um, anybody can go check you out at, at the big other show, yeah. but we love that we have this exclusive um, experience. Now, again, we haven't been doing it recently, but we will be getting back into it once we do Mad Different. Um, one of the things that we want to implement is a whole community building element of getting sort of the counterculture and um, the sort of disability vibe and uh, folks like that involved and allowing them to be the VIPs, allowing us really, myself included, in our community to be the VIPs and experience a lot of, of the content we're going to be putting out uh, before the general public. That's great. Um, have you ever recorded your shows and done anything with that content? We record our shows. Have we done anything with the content? Um I don't know that we've monetized our recorded shows. What we'll do is we'll put up snippets and allow folks to watch different um, sections of the show. Uh, We have used some of our show footage to showcase to fans in our VIP section. We have used some of our show footage um, to showcase who we are uh, to new markets. And we have used some of our show footage, honestly, for marketing and promotional materials through ads and things of that nature. And it's been really, really useful and helpful. Um, But in terms of a direct revenue stream, I cannot say that we have done that yet. So I'm just going to be completely honest and transparent there. Well, I think what you're doing is like, like in a good way, like more work. And I think you guys are being really smart about it. It's also something you could pop in, pop a show into the Patreon uh, once in a while too and surprise them. Mm -hmm. Love it. Absolutely. Um, I know this is a little tricky because you've been signed to labels, but is your catalog all out on vinyl? No, we have some songs out on vinyl, but we do not have like a full catalog out on vinyl. And that is uh, a big contingent of what we're going to be doing for Mad Different. Um, We want, so we have this whole thing on accessibility, right? So we want our music to also be accessible in different formats. And vinyl is 
a really beautiful sort of physical thing that people are really enjoying right now, especially audiophiles. And so we want to incorporate that in our next thing. But we do have, in fact, this is one of my favorites, right? Oh, I'm going to make everything fall down right now. <laughs> so we have uh, this, which was um, Rise that I did with my friend uh, Stephen Crawford. Mm -hmm. And we had live musicians. We had a live drummer. We had a live keyboardist. I mean, the, the musicality was just so good that we could not, you know, not give it its flowers by putting it on vinyl. You know, a lot, I mean, yes, I get that there's Dolby Atmos, but a lot of sound um, is lost in these compressed Spotify streams, in these compressed Apple Music streams, even on these waveforms. I want to hear it direct from the actual spinning vinyl. Yeah. Um, and that's what you get. And I know folks are thinking like, oh, that's just for music nerds or people who care like a lot about audio, audiophilia. Is that, that doesn't sound right. But at the end of the, at the end of the day, it is uh, leaps and bounds of a different experience when you experience physical music through vinyl. Um, so we're really excited to be incorporating that uh, in our Mad Different album. Fantastic. You are obviously crushing it on speaking engagements. And I, you know, I actually, we have the same speaking agent. So like, there's that happening. But like, how did you start? You know, how did how did that um, space start for you, you know, and, and grow into what it is today? Frankly, it honestly started with that women in music panel, yeah. right? Um, it started there. And it allowed me to establish myself not only as a person with a disability, but as a musician. And, or well, as a musician advocate, as a person with a disability. And throughout COVID times, I kept getting invited to different panels to talk in that way. Now, I will say I wasn't getting paid that much, right, in the beginning, because I was just trying to get my name out there. But very quickly, I recognized that what I'm giving is expertise and what I'm doing is work, especially pre preparing and, you know, giving a piece of myself and utilizing the skills that I had to pay for to get. Um, so it quickly flipped on its head doing things for free. Um, finding value, especially as a musician and an artist or whatever, it's difficult, right? It's difficult to like navigate ego and navigate like, I don't want to act like I'm all too superior and this and that, and then I don't get the gig because of it. But the truth of the matter is, is what you're offering is your expertise, you're offering your experience, and you should be paid for that. Um, and I think one of my biggest, um, I, I think a, a really big uh, event or, or show that I did was uh, my appearance at the Kennedy Center. Um, I was paid like, you know, Kennedy Center, I was paid well, and I did a really great show. Mm -hmm. And then that turned into more um, folks wanting yeah. the, the type of thing that I did at the Kennedy Center in 2021, which was my first keynote concert. Folks said, we really love what you did there. Can you do it here? We ended up doing it at Disability Inn. We ended up doing it at all these other places that I mentioned. And the beautiful thing about it is, you know, offering something that folks find valuable. Yeah. Um, and saying, if you value this, make sure that you take care of me when I get there. Um, so speaking has been, like I said, it's definitely been the bread and butter. Mm -hmm. We do it. All the I have ton, dozens of dozens of engagements um, every year, 
and um, I wouldn't ask for uh, anything different. I will say, though, however, you know, now that we're in um, pre, like post, you know, COVID um, sort of situations, uh, you know, every town and state is different. That's one thing I've found. And it is really smart when you get these gigs. I found to really do the research of the vibe of the place you're going to um, and, you know, what is expected of you there. Like, you don't want to show, you know, I I don't want to give too much advice here, but I just, you don't want to show up to a place that's mask city and be maskless. And then all of a sudden you're trying to get paid for a gig, right? So you want to respect um, the place you go. Um, and you just want to know a lot about who's who's bringing you out there. Yeah. Uh, that's probably one of the biggest takeaways um, that you could you could have is a value yourself, mm-hmm. but b be super duper prepared for where you're going. Excellent advice. Have you ever put out any sheet music books or individual sheet music? You know, I have not put out any sheet music books, but what I will say is. I'm actually currently writing a nonfiction narrative on my life as a recording artist uh, that is blind, black, trying to walk this path of disability, identity, and culture. Um, And that book is um, tentatively right now called I Identify as Blind uh, because folks keep going, why would you choose to be blind? Why would you identify as blind? And I love how controversial that that conversation ends up getting. Um, And in that book, apart from talking about my narrative and celebrating the sort of pop culture narrative of other sort of disabled public figures, um, I'm going to be incorporating my original handwritten song lyrics, um, my sheet music and my um, poems, journal entries uh, and things of that nature because of how like ridiculous my trajectory has been from like shy, quiet person who never talks to this person who, as all of you can see right now, doesn't know when to stop talking, loves talking, um, and is running all over the globe. Um, but that trajectory, um, you know, along the way, I wrote songs. Along the way, I wrote poems. I expressed myself through that medium. And um, we're incorporating a lot of the live written lyrics, a lot of the live sheet music, and a lot of the live poetry and journals. Oh, beautiful. I can't wait to check that out. Um, have you ever given music lessons before? Yes, I have given music lessons. Um, I've done anything from songwriting workshops mm-hmm. to uh, how to play by ear sort of music lessons, so ear trainings. Um, and I have got to say, it's it's a it's a good little way, especially when you're um, either a looking for something consistent. Mm-hmm. So grabbing a couple of students and having them come back all of the time. Um, but B, it's actually a good way to, to make some money in a pinch. I mean, yeah. there's always going to be somebody looking for, it turns out that it's actually not that hard to find people looking for lessons. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so there's always people looking for lessons. But on top of that, um, I offer or have offered um, workshops, um, songwriting workshops, and there's a lot of different songwriting programs and organizations uh, that'll come to you and ask you to help do those workshops um, and and proctor them. There are songwriting camps that you can be a part of, not just not like just as a camper, but as a person offering something to the camp, you know, offering songwriting services, offering vocal services, maybe offering um, piano lessons, offering oboe lessons, 
or what, what have you. Um, so don't knock it. I know that some people think like, oh, you know, I'm a musician. I'm not going to sit here and give lessons. That's, you know, what an educator does. Well, there's a lot of stuff um, that, you know, bigger names do that they don't feel like celebrating because they got too many other things to celebrate. Um, but they, a lot of folks give lessons on the side. Like a lot of my friends give lessons on the side. I'll be like, hey, let's go out drinking. They're like, yeah, I have lessons. Yeah. I'm like, oof. Okay. Okay. So, you know, do them, do them. Let's make this money. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> um, so just a few more. Um, have you ever hosted a podcast? I did my video cast, which was uh, the YouTube series, which was um, the offbeat. Yeah. And I really enjoyed it. I mean, one of the things that we did was, you know, we had our donation link in the, in the, in the bio section of the YouTube yeah. area. People came through um, and like, I got to say, I got the PBS opportunity yeah. because of that video series. Um, and so I can't, I can't like knock enough. And you know, the, the great thing about podcasting now, podcasting is a lot of work. You should know that Emily. Um, it's a lot of work. Um, you got to get the engine going. And then once you get into the groove, um, it becomes like a repetitive process. But I think that the benefits really, um, really do come. Because if you're able to get your podcast off the ground, there is so much opportunity for podcasts. I mean, brands want to sponsor podcasts. Um, Spotify wants to pay for podcasts. Um, there are a lot of nonprofit organizations that want to support podcasts that want to like, especially if you're, you know, oh, I'm a woman podcaster or I'm a BIPOC podcaster or I'm a disabled podcaster. Like a lot of these organizations want to get these messages um, and these niece messages out on podcasts. And so folks are supporting podcasts is what it is right now. Mm -hmm. So if you have the time, resources, and ability, and you really do have something to say, and it's something you're passionate about and you're well-researched on it, I say do it because people are, people are, are all about podcasts right now. That's great. Um, what are you doing in the branding sponsorship and endorsement space? Uh, I do have a brand manager um, and they help us get um, endorsements, some sponsorships, some branding. Um, really, I guess the best answer to that is that my sponsorships and my endorsements are not specifically music based. Yeah. Right. They are because I am a funny or talkative or, you know, I talk about black issues and queer issues because I talk about disability issues. Um, that's where a lot of it comes from. It comes from like the 360 view of me as a person and me as a platform. Mm -hmm. So um, a lot of folks have asked me in the past, like, how do you get, you know, those sponsorships or those deals or those even the speaking engagements or, you know, every once in a while I'll do like an Instagram co-post with a different brand. Um, and people say like, how do you get those? And on the honest answer is if a, I feel like if a sponsor or a, a potential brand or a potential um, company or firm sees your web presence, like across the board, not just Instagram or not just Spotify or whatever, and can easily understand where they fit and can yeah. see that you have engagement with the people where they fit, it's, it's a no brainer. Like they will, they will sponsor you. They want, they want to actually, it's not a, um, it's not a finite situation. Mm -hmm. It's like, they actually have the money and they want to give it to you. 
um, they want you to do it. Influencer marketing is like a big thing right now. Um, but if you have that brand that they're looking for, yeah. for whatever reason, a brand wanted a, a black woman with a disability to do something. Mm -hmm. Or for whatever reason, a brand wanted like a fashionable woman with, you know, braids to do something. Or for whatever reason, a brand wanted sort of like a loudmouth, funny, uh, well-spoken, you know, whatever. Bec and it's not just about music. Mm -hmm. My music helped me with, you know, my follower count. Um, but I think the branding comes from the actual engagement of the type of people they want to look at. That's how you get those sponsors. Yeah, that's right. Um, syncs. You ha you ha you've had a lot of sync history. Did that come through your publishers, your labels? Um, how have you landed those syncs? So sync is a, is interesting and a, a funny ball game, but um, some have landed through my management, my publisher, mm -hmm. publishing management, um, and then others are direct. So yeah. I have found that sync is a very relationship-based place. Um, you want to um, know some of these supervisors from some of the shows you want to get on, um, or you want to have a manager who does, um, or a publishing agency who does, um, because sync is very relationship-based. And I, I will say a lot of the syncs that I got were from, you know, converse, like internal conversations um, between either my sync agent and the show, um, or my managing publisher, um, which was big management at the time, mm -hmm. um, and their relationship with the people at the show. So there are a lot of really great sync places that do sync that are accessible to artists. I feel like a lot of artists are just like, I don't have time to sit here and make a relationship with 58 music supervisors, which yeah. is a true statement. Or you yeah. can, honestly, because they actually really like talking straight to the artists sometimes. Um, but there's people out there like Friendly Fire, Centric, like there's a bunch of like organizations out there that I, I'm friends with. And I know that they just like, love artists and they want to sign different artists if you fit their roster bill. So uh, there's a lot of opportunity. The last thing I'll say about sync though, is that paycheck is fun. Cause sometimes you don't even know it's coming Yeah, and you'll just be hanging out, just like having a beer. And then all of a sudden, you know, you get the call and it's like, yep, we landed it. Here's $15,000. Okay. Whoa. Awesome. Let me get a second beer. <laughs> so, you know, I, I highly encourage folks that can be a very lucrative and it's yeah. a game. It's like a, a system you can kind of game yeah. if you start knowing the right people, um, start molding your music to the right type of genre and the right type of messaging that your type of music um, is key for. You can make a regular, just good ass living on just syncs. Yeah, that's great. Um, you've had success on YouTube. How are you collecting, uh, might be through your labels, but, um, how are you collecting your royalties on the recording side, um, on YouTube? Yeah, on YouTube, um, that is definitely collected through the labels. Yeah. Um, and you know, I think that it's really paramount and tantamount that you make sure that you're listed as a main artist on all of your tracks that you collaborate on, um, so that you can get those collections. Um, but yeah, YouTube has been great. Uh, one of the things that I encourage artists to also do that I've been kind of doing that's been getting me more plays on my YouTube music stuff is shorts. Yeah. Um, this like, you know, amorphous idea of shorts, right? People are like, I'm already doing TikTok and reels. This is too many things. You can repurpose that content and just throw it up on shorts. Um, shorts, if you stay consistent, you will, people will come. It's kind of like TikTok. If you do the same exact content every day, 
there's 8 billion people on this earth. Somebody's going to like it. And then two or three are going to, and then eventually a lot of people are. So I don't, Emily, I don't know if you've been tuned into the stuff that we do, but really what we do is we take my cane and we just walk down the street. All we do is take my cane and I walk down the street. That's all I do. And every once in a while, it'll go like completely viral. We'll have like 200,000 views on it or something, or it'll just get like anywhere from one to 5,000 views, which is always fine. But it'll open up a conversation about, you know, cane walking and blindness and somebody will go like, but she's a musician. You should check her stuff out. Then we have people funneling to the music or we'll have our music playing in the background. Um, So I encourage folks use YouTube shorts because it has worked for me. Like I've seen it work. So try it out. Very cool. So just two more. We'll do a quick Q&A and let everyone go. Obviously, you play on other artists' recording session workers. I don't even know if we really need to get into that because we covered that, but um, you certainly um, mm-hmm. have crushed it in that space. Not really a question. Yeah, I mean, go it, ahead. it kind of harkens. Yeah, no, I, I hearken back to my Sound Better days. Um, it's what turned me into the quote-unquote top-line queen when I was just kind of in the trenches cranking out tunes and collaborating and collaborating um, and now I'm at a point where it's just, it's what I love to do. Um, and I always encourage folks, especially if you're like a songwriter, a vocalist, a singer, or a really, really great and passionate session musician, get on these things uh, because people are looking for folks like you. Uh, they need you to work on their albums and it's good for you to get into these rooms. So that was probably my bread and butter that really got me on the map. So I'm never going to knock um, collaborating. I'm never going to knock sessioning. Um, because it, I've seen it work. It's worked for me. That's right. And you've obviously arranged for other artists, but have you ever produced, mixed, mastered, remixed? I have, um, produced. So I am, uh, by trade, a vocal producer. Um, so I've had people literally come into my studio and lay down vocals. Um, and then I will produce the vocals uh, and I will mix the vocals. I do not master and, um, mastering is a very specific skill. So I do not do that. Um, but I have created beats as well for other artists and for myself. And, you know, having that ability to do that is actually really smart, really helpful. Uh, because A, when you're in a major studio and people are saying, you know, people are saying words that you don't know, like, you know, what's a metronome, you know, <laughs> like, like things like that. Um, you'll know what it is and you'll be able to speak intelligently and, you know, you won't get one over it. Um, but also it's just, it's also like a really great revenue revenue situation. Um, I was having people just uh, up until COVID, honestly, I was making a healthy living having people come in and produce vocals in my, my studio. That's great. That uh, This was such an amazing interview. Thank you, Lachi. I just want to offer the opportunity if anyone um, online or in the audience has any questions for Lachi. Yes, Eli. Hey, Lachi. Uh, thank you for being here. My name is Eli. Um, I sing. Eli. Hey, Lachi. Uh, thank you for being here. My name is Eli. Um, I sing and write songs. Um, and as a songwriter, I got pretty excited when you mentioned that the need for us folks is kind of increasing. Um, but up until recently, um, thanks to the help of Emily, just this whole thing has seemed so like elusive. Um, and I don't know like who to show my work to or like how to get my foot in the door other than just like posting my own music. Um, so, and I, and I want to collaborate more, you know, and I, you know, I do like locally and stuff, but um, like, I, like 
you know, it's not really where like the money is. Like if I wanted to make it a job, I wouldn't know what to do. I don't really feel like I can walk somewhere and like apply, you know? So, um, you mentioned a couple of things, but just like, what are like, what are some things that songwriters can do to like proudly be able to say like, yeah, I'm a songwriter. Like that's what I do, you know? Right. Yeah. That's actually a really good question. And I'm actually glad that you asked it. Um, I think the real nitty gritty, honest answer is going to end up being networking. Um, It's going to end up being getting yourself in songwriting rooms where you're writing with other songwriters. And a lot of that is going to admittedly be on spec, right? It's going to start with you writing for free um, or just going to different sessions. Um, Then the next question would be, well, how do I find out these sessions, right? Um, a A really great way is A, to join, obviously join different like songwriting circles, um, be a part of different songwriting camps. Um, A a great way to find community is, I don't know if you're signed up to a PRO like ASCAP or BMI, um, but they will have um, different events. If you're signed up to their newsletter, they'll have different events. Show up at those events um, and start meeting people because the people who go to those events are the ones that are also trying to make things happen and things move. Um, Sometimes you might find an artist come through one of those events that are really celebrated or at, at, or at the most, you'll find other producers who need a songwriter and who, who want to collab. So I would highly encourage you to get out there and network. Um, I don't really know how well Soundbetter is doing right now. I haven't been on Soundbetter in like two years, Uh, but that's another great place to try to find people to collaborate with, write with, um, do things with. Um, And then lastly, I would just straight up say uh, Facebook groups, Reddit groups that have songwriters and producers on there exchanging ideas. Um, Those are really great places uh, to find things going on. Now, I myself being a woman, I just know a lot of really great women organizations like um, Women in Music is a great place for women songwriters to find other songwriters or um, She is the Music is a huge one. Um, for the LGBTQ, there is queer capita, obviously for folks with disabilities, there's ramped. Um, but there are so many like songwriter societies out there where you can find other songwriters. Um, but the long, short and skinny of it is going to be getting out and networking and just getting in the room with different writers, asking them about what camps they've done, asking them about what services they use, um, and where they go. Um, and who they've been working with. And hey, can I get on a track with you? Um, Like literally, I was just talking, so I was at the Black Music Collective Honors um, at the Recording Academy. And I gotta say, it was probably the first time I was in a room with like every famous person I've ever known. And I was just going up to like, hey, hi, love the dress. Um, Would love to know more about like what you're doing in songwriting and you know, where you're moving. And you know, just, it doesn't have to be a, you know, like, hey, help me be a songwriter. It could just be like, hey, let's have a conversation. Um, a really good quote somebody said to me was, when you ask for money, you get advice. But when you ask for advice, you get money. So you want to have a very genuine conversation with people, be on the level, and just find out where um, you can get more involved. It's all about that network. Thank you. So it sounds like the Black Music Collective would be a good organization to check out as well. Any other questions for Lachi? 
All right. Well, Lachi, thank you so much for all of your time and your wisdom today. It was such a joy to talk to you and such an honor to have you. Thank you so much for having me. This has been uh, such a great, fun time. Always a good time hanging out with the great Emily White, of course. And, um, you know, hey, let me know when you're back in town. Let's grab. Oh, grab eight more days. <laughs> I'm, I'm looking forward to getting back to New York. Um, well, Lachi, thank you again. Let's give it up for Lachi. And also thanks to Lachi's fabulous manager, Arthur Gwen. We, we really appreciate it and loved the uh, Kane cameo today. That was awesome. Uh, well, Lachi and Arthur, thank you again. And we'll be in touch. Thank you so very much. Absolutely. So that's a wrap for episode 10 of How to Build a Sustainable Music Career and Collect All Revenue Streams Season 2. Join us on Monday. We're back again on Monday uh, for episode 11. We've just got two more to go. Uh, repeat and grow where we're gonna, going to be discussing a conversation with Academy Award winner and No Studios founder John Ridley. We'll see you then.